Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Dorian Linsky. On this week's podcast, a year on from the first lockdown, we're thinking about civil liberties all over again. Is Parliament doing a good enough job of protecting them in the long run, especially in light of the new police bill? Then Joe Biden's American rescue plan. How big a deal is it? And what can Labour learn from the Democrats' achievement? And as Line of Duty returns to TV, we look at so-called copaganda. Are police shows on TV just harmless entertainment or do they really whitewash law enforcement? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. Just a reminder, if you're a Patreon backer, The Bunker's first ever solo live Zoom is this Thursday at 8pm, no longer propped up by Oh God, What Now? Andrew will be joined by regulars Ahir Shah, Yasmin Sahan and Arthur Snell, plus Brian Klass, our unofficial US politics correspondent for a fun evening of pan-global political analysis and angst. It's free and exclusive to Patreon backers, so search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up. Now let's meet today's panel. First up, it's Chief Executive of Best of Britain, Naomi Smith. Hello, Naomi. Hi, Dorian. Now, Labour has selected NHS doctor Paul Williams, former MP for Stockton South, to fight the Hartlepool by-election in May. There was instant controversy over the candidate's sexist tweet and praise for Saudi Arabia, and over the process itself, which involved a long list of one. Does it smell fishy to you, the uh, the sort of old-school kind of um, candidate fixing? Well, look, by-elections are always a little bit like that, and most political parties have different rules that apply in by-elections to the traditional selections for Westminster elections. So it's not completely unusual, and, and you know, the, the, there is enough uh, infighting within the Labour Party to last us all a lifetime. I think the bigger issue we've got is that this is going to be an incredibly tough by-election for Labour to uh, fight and to hold the seat by-elections that get caused through scandal, and in this case it's allegations of um, you know, sexual harassment, the incumbent party doesn't often get that that bounce that, that you would hope for. So they're sort of starting on the back foot anyway, then that potentially being a bit compounded by, you know, slightly... Uh, sexist language um the, the, i think the phrase is is milf that that paul williams used i think about 10 years ago or so 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 that's all not great but the politics of that seat are tricky and i'm a bit worried about it i mean i think you would expect and conventional wisdom would suggest that at this point in the parliamentary cycle you would hope that an opposition party would sort of be sweeping up by elections at this point, especially you would think against the backdrop of you know near one hundred and thirty thousand deaths from COVID and the worst recession in the G seven. But actually, the Conservatives have got quite a good chance of gaining this seat. Obviously, Richard Tice, uh, formerly of the Brexit Party, now of Reform UK, uh, did very well uh, relatively in the 2019 election in that seat. And I think I'm just a bit worried that if Labour don't hold this seat or don't perform anywhere near as well as they would hope to, that they may learn some of the wrong lessons from it rather than the ones that we as you know progressive internationalists would want them to be learning. Yeah, it's one of the worst places than to have a by-election. Yeah, at this moment yeah. for all for all those kind of factors, because without Tice running before, the Tories may have taken it already. Yes, yes. Um, although a lot of people are, are sort of <clears throat> saying that a lot of that Labour vote already went to Tice at the last election, uh, so there might not be new uh, Labour vote to go over to them. I think that 
you know, you, you, you've got to build a coalition in order to win. Of course you do. Absolutely true. Um, at a general election time, but, but Labour are not going to win more votes by trying to be more conservative and more levy than the Conservative Party. And so I just, I'm, I'm worried that if they don't do as well as we'd all hope, uh, that they'll then try to prioritise winning over those socially conservative voters that they haven't won back in this by-election at a macro scale, rather than building alliances with other progressive parties. I'm pretty sure that Dan Hodges is already writing his Our Identity Politics Cost Labour Harley Pool <laughs> article. Also joining us, we have the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Farnbella. Hi, Miata. Hi. So some EU states are going back into lockdown as a third wave hits regions, including Paris. At the same time, European leaders have somehow managed to convince a majority of voters that the AstraZeneca vaccine is unsafe, even though it is definitely not. Um, Now, this is about individual nations, not the EU. But how have so many of them made such a hash of the vaccine rollout? This has actually been a story for for a few weeks now. Uh, So I think for me, the headline stat that sums up the problem is the fact that only 12 percent of the EU population has had their first jab compared to 45 percent of the UK population. So clearly, clearly they have a massive problem here. Um, And I think it's probably in a number of different stages. I think the first thing is they were slower. I think, on procuring. They're also slower on approving some of the vaccines than, say, for example, the UK was. Um, I think the second part is the infrastructure. And I I don't think we should underestimate just how phenomenal the NHS infrastructure has been in order to roll out the vaccine. And I think you're going to get differentiation in different EU states depending on how both resourced, uh, but also how effective across national country level, uh, the health infrastructure is, you know, where you've got federal system or you've got state systems, it tends to be a bit more fragmented. And one of the benefits of the health system is that you've been able to roll it out across the nation at such scale. But then I think for me, the third piece is the comms. And, you know, with the vaccine rollout, the comms was always going to be absolutely critical, um, partly to, you know, make sure that people weren't worried about it, partly to treat it as something that people should want to do. And I think one of the areas where actually the government here has been really effective is the comms. If you remember those first vaccines uh, that were broadcast, that sense of excitement, you know, when you hear people have been vaccinated, we say congratulations. So there's a sense that this is a thing that we all desperately want. And that creates, I think, a culture and it creates a sense of optimism and positivity about the vaccine. Whereas, you know, in the EU, there is that vaccine scepticism that's a little bit more profound. And then the whole complete, in my view, debacle around AstraZeneca, it's safe, it's not safe, has just compounded that. So I think they've got the comms desperately wrong, so much so that half of you know the population in Germany now think AstraZeneca is unsafe. 61% in France think it's unsafe. So the, the, the PR piece of this, which was vital for the campaign, I think they've just got desperately wrong. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a great shame. And I hope they managed to catch up. We're delighted to be joined today by Emily Benn, former Labour politician, tortoise media contributor and the granddaughter of Labour grandee, Tony Benn. The clue's in the surname. Welcome to The Bunker, Emily. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. Well, we're going to talk about civil liberties uh, in the big picture later. But I wanted to ask you first about the violence in Bristol over the weekend, um, where protests against the police bill ended up with a police van on fire and officers attacked. Some people say that this will play into the government's hands and make the bill more popular with the public. Do you think it will have any effect on the passage of the bill, given, of course, that they, you know, they, they do have a, a large majority? 
Uh, I'm not sure it will have a huge amount of impact on the actual passage of the bill. I'm not sure how many minds in that sense it would have changed. But it, it does make the argument harder for those that were concerned about the right to peaceful protest when a protest that was supposed to be peaceful against protecting the right then turned violent. It does make some of the public trying to change people's minds, trying to get people to, to, to understand some of the civil liberties issues and why you should care, even in a pandemic. Yeah, it does make it a little bit harder. And it's just as ever a complete and utter shame that the actions of some idiotic individuals obscure what is actually really, really important to all of us. So we continue with worrying times for civil liberties. We've had shocking scenes of different kinds over two consecutive weekends. First, the police wading into the Sarah Everard vigil on Clapham Common to mass criticism, and then the violence in Bristol to mass criticism uh, from other quarters. And concern about civil liberties isn't just coming from the left. It's now a year this week since the first set of lockdown restrictions came into force, and the heaviest critics of them are on the Tory right. The fear has always been that some of these temporary regulations could become permanent. Has the experience of lockdown made us accept things that we previously wouldn't? Emily Benn has been watching this carefully. Emily, what extraordinary executive powers did the Coronavirus Act last year grant the government? And which of those are you concerned will stick around once the pandemic has passed? There are two ways that the government has done this right over the past year. Firstly, it's relied on something that long predated coronavirus. So uh, the 1984 Public Health Act, which gives the Secretary of State for Health powers to do lots of things, to restrict lots of things, as they have done. Uh, and Matt Hancock has used that to do a whole load of the first round of lockdown easing, uh, sorry, regulations going in and then easing. And then it passed the Coronavirus Act itself last March. Now, the government originally last year wanted this to last for two years without any you know, parliamentary scrutiny of it. The, the bill went through rapid time. It had a few hours of debate. No one even objected. So there was no vote. In the end, they had to say that everything would be voted on every six months. So they had the renewal in September. And now we're having the, the second one this time. Uh, this act has the powers to detain individuals who you think might be infectious. Actually, a lot of the detaining they've done has, uh, has been proven to be uh, wrong. Uh, the police restrict gatherings, ban protests, close businesses, sh- shut schools. A lot of that came from this. Uh, six months is a very, very long time to then give the government carte blanche to, to do these powers without any any further scrutiny or any further democratic debate. So it, it makes me feel very uneasy. And I have to say, if you were talking to me a year ago today, I wouldn't necessarily have been thinking this or saying this. But over the course of the last year, I've become increasingly concerned at how few people are concerned about the, the levels of restrictions and the level of uh, civil liberty restrictions without kind of any any kind of say-so uh, or any debate. And, and why has scrutiny been so much weaker? Was it, was it inevitable or was it uh, decisions made, for example, uh, by opposition parties? Both. So firstly, at the beginning, and I can understand it, the panic at the beginning, you wanted to, A, the main opposition, well, firstly, you had a leadership election that hadn't even finished by that point, right? Um, in the Labour Party. Secondly, the Labour Party's political um, approach has been to often accuse the government of not doing enough quickly and not doing um, measures strict enough. So it is a little bit hard to have that concurrent political track of saying, hey, the government, you haven't done enough with a procedural track as well. Hey, you haven't opened yourself up to enough scrutiny and gone through the serious parliamentary processes at the same time. So it's a little bit tricky. And obviously in Scotland, the main (laughs) um, opposition is likewise accused um, accused the Westminster government of not doing enough quick enough. Fear and panic at the beginning, which I, I totally <laughs> totally get and totally understand, and total panic and worry. If you think back to exactly a year ago um, today, we really didn't have any idea what we were facing and how bad things might get. But 
as the course of the pandemic has, uh, you know, as we've lived through it, what I found most interesting is that it has been to your introduction, it has really only been on the right of the Conservative Party and the COVID recovery group, which was formed, you know, all those months ago. And um, even David Davis uh, at the beginning, uh, it hasn't really seeped into any other parts of politics, which I also find a little bit problematic because there's been a long tradition of kind of civil liberty uh, defenders and, and people that, you know, stand up for civil liberties against excessive executive power on the left. And, and they have not been as active or as, as um, vocal as I would have thought. And, if you know, just to put it this way, all of the first round and, and second round of lockdown measures at the beginning and then again and then easing, if you only rely on statutory instruments, which is what the government has used, it doesn't give Parliament any opportunity to uh, amend, to make better, to use, you know, parliamentary leverage to try and iron out some of the complete deficiencies of the government's legislative approach, like how about the fact that we still don't have proper support for isolation, test, trace and isolate, isolate, isolation rates have been rubbish, partly because so many people can't afford to. But it's very difficult when, you know, MPs have got literally no power because in a statutory instrument, A, you, you have to wait long after they've already been implemented um, to have a say on it. And you can only affirm it or say no. And, and in a lot of cases, you're voting on something that's already taken into effect and it's just it's very tricky and you know it puts the police it has put the police in pretty um difficult situations because uh it seems to me that some of them don't you some of the police don't understand what's been guidance and what's been law and uh, not least because in some of the cases it's been published at 3 a.m with seven hours notice and no one's had a chance to read it so it's not a good way of making policy and the fact that it's an emergency is not a good enough excuse for poor legislative and poor scrutiny and one of the things that's been interesting, I think, in the public response to, to COVID is it's brought out a lot of people's inner cot. I don't remember there was a big phase of, you know, people taking pictures of crowds. While also outside. <laughs> Look at this lot. Or, you know, lit- or, you know, literally kind of like, you know, ratting on, uh, on neighbours. How much do you think that the police bill has been either shaped by COVID or do you think that perhaps they're seeing, okay, look, this is this is a weird period where for whatever reason, people are kind of a little more authoritarian than they would normally be because there is a health emergency and that therefore this is a good opportunity to push through these restrictions. I wonder what the relationship between COVID and the police bill is in your mind. There must be there must must be some of that. And then I mean, who would have known that then actually we were talking about the police in a very, very different context given the actions of the Metropolitan Police ten days ago. There's a bit of that. I I do think though that the lesson of COVID, when the police have been handed extra discretionary powers, a lot of which have then shown to be used incorrectly. If you look at how many police fines in the last year over COVID restrictions that had to be rescinded because they were given out in error, I do think it's a then difficult time to it in this bill give the police more and more discretionary powers and put so much power um, into the hands of the home secretary is is tricky and to diminish the rights of people to to protest when they're uh, when they're unhappy about things um i think it's i think it's a it's a tricky time and you shouldn't i i don't think any of us should use the last year and the extraordinary extent of executive power as some sort of new normal i think that would mm. be very very dangerous and wrong and that is not about wanting to stop the executive or the government from being able to do things quickly and respond to a health emergency of which I am in no doubt of its seriousness and there's you know being 
when you know even a few months ago when talking about this issue you were kind of lumped into a kind of oh you know don't be a covid denier a lockdown denier that is really really not the point and very very unhelpful when you're trying to grapple with how much restriction is is uh, you know is proportionate and reasonable and how much the rights of everyone are are being taken away without any concern don't don't lump us with with people that are, it's, that's not fair and it's not a fair representation of what we're trying to talk about. But I worry about the police bill. I worry about handing discretionary powers to an institution that doesn't always show that it's worthy of carrying out those powers on a discretionary basis. Naomi, um, Labour are calling for a public inquiry into the handling of the pandemic. Do you think that that should include mission creep on civil liberties as well as the, the obvious public health failures? Well, I mean, look, I want as many sticks to beat them with as possible. So, you know, let's have multiple inquiries, finding multiple things uh, that that have been done poorly. Um, I don't want to diminish from an inquiry on the health handling of the crisis. I think that is so crucial. If only we'd had it already and we may have uh, been able to um, avoid some of the, the horrendous mistakes that were made first time round and and not make them again second time round and, and potentially third, depending on how many times you're counting full lockdowns as being. You know, it, the, the government is doing incredibly well with the vaccine rollout. I don't think anyone disputes that. And, you know, globally, it's up there with Israel and, and others in terms of doing very, very well on that. But that is masking the horrendous failings on both lives and livelihoods lost. So, yes, this is an incredibly important issue. We've we've got a, a, a terribly authoritarian government in many respects and a real mission creep um, over COVID legislation into uh, other pernicious bills, notably Priti Patel's policing bill that need proper scrutiny. Um, but I think I would probably like to keep the inquiry separate. Yeah. And at the end of last week, the police bill did seem to be facing some serious pushback. Government have mm. pushed the next stages into the midsummer. Um, and of course, that pushback does include some of the, the civil libertarians yeah. on the Tory benches. Um, now, this is a government with a massive majority, which can mm. uh, can generally get through whatever it likes. What's the significance of the fact, and this is before talking about any effects of the, of the events of the weekend, um, what's significance of the fact that they did move it back? Do you think that they were were, were caught on the hop? Well, we did at Best for Britain a huge amount of work on this and my eternal gratitude to all our supporters that that rode in on this. So we got more than, I think, 22,000 messages sent to MPs in the 36 hours before the votes last week. And the vast, vast, vast majority of those two Conservative MPs. And obviously, we we can see which MPs got the most and put it this way, Steve Baker got a huge number. So it was incredibly disappointing that he had co-signed or co-authored a piece with Dominic Grieve on the morning of the vote that was published in Conservative Home. But yet he and all of his fellow sort of, you know, libertarians voted with the government on it. But it won't have gone unnoticed by any of them, uh, not least government, the, the strength of opinion coming in from the public and, and from people who haven't written to their MPs before. I mean, the numbers we were seeing meant that these aren't just people that have written over things like Brexit. That these are people coming out of the woodwork to say, look, I can tolerate many things, but this really is an assault on our democracy. And obviously, 
against the backdrop of what had happened at the, the Sarah Everard vigil, I, I suppose people felt even more motivated. Um, so I, I'm sure that that will have had an effect. There's probably a lot that the Lords were going to do with it anyway. We'll wait and see. But absolutely, the war is not won on this at all. And pressure does need to be kept up. Um, Miata, Labour's opposing the police bill and a lot of the younger uh, sort of MPs and commentators on the left refused to condemn the violence in Bristol in, in, in sort of various phrasings. Um, but is law and order always something Labour would rather not talk about because the activist base and the, the swing voters are so far apart? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, I think part of the issue with uh, law and order is that it has become politicised um, in a way that tends to go against, uh, if you like, some of our liberal progressive instincts and the sense that law and order always has to be combined or associated with kind of toughness. We go back to Tony Blair, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. I still remember that. So I think there is something that feels a bit uncomfortable for Labour. Um, And I I don't think it needs to be because actually our criminal justice system is woefully, woefully inadequate and in desperate need of reform um, from everything to how we think about sentencing to rehabilitation. And it needs to be gripped. And, you know, if you look at the uh, policing bill, I don't think we do anything to actually solve the big, big problems uh, that our criminal justice system works. So actually, I think there is a kind of progressive path to law and order that Labour could take and could comfortably occupy a way that's consistent with his instincts. And I think we do need to kind of break the debate about law and order that means it's always tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, because it's not working. We've done that for a really long time. And there are still the problems that existed, you know, 10, 15 years ago still exist today. And we have a system that is creaking at the seams. So it needs to be gripped properly. The bill clearly doesn't do that. And there is a space if Labour wants to occupy it uh, to do so. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting, Mato. And I think that you know that it feels like there's this sort of constant contradiction within the party around you know on the one hand trying to appeal to uh, you know progressive liberals and sort of social conservative authoritarians at the same time, and it hasn't yet landed on the the comfort zone of how to straddle that. I suppose that uh, something like the police fan incident is, of course, the worst thing for if you're a kind of uh, if you're a Labour leader. You know, because you can't come out and do Martin Luther King and say, you know, a riot is the uh, is 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 the voice of the powerless, and you know, this is what happens. Um, because, of course, many left wing activists can do that, but you simply, presumably, cannot do that if you're Keir Starmer. That just seems to be um, there's just sort of off limits if you're a leader. I mean, I think it's a little bit more difficult. Um, but, you know, I think that there are forms of uh, protest uh, that can be pretty aggressive in their tactics that, you know, political leaders can stand behind, particularly if they do the job of shifting public opinion. I think the difficulty with the protests in Bristol, you know, I thought Marvin Rees, uh, the mayor of Bristol, kind of summed it up quite well, which is, you know, the people who are most aggrieved by the criminal justice system are people like me, you know, people of colour, people uh, that have come from poor backgrounds. And actually the riots that we saw did nothing to advance our cause. It did nothing to protect us. So I think for me, it's whether the tactics that are used actually advances the cause. And it's not clear that actually over the weekend it did that. Um, Emily, quick final uh, point. The Black Lives Matter protests weren't the flashpoint that they could have been during the first lockdown, yet uh, some of the vigil for, for Sarah Everard became a fiasco during this one. 
given the fact that that since you know over the past year we've we've had so much evidence that outdoor gatherings are not super spreader events you know you can have a packed beach and that doesn't seem to kind of cause a spike mm-hmm. do you think the government and and indeed individual police forces should have been a bit a lot smarter about making exceptions for protests you know in in relation to to covid well i i, I mean there's a question about the policing response to the Sarah Everard visual full stop, which is why the police then decided to, if reports are correct, say, well, this is a protest now, we're doing X. Yeah, there's there's still lots of questions about the response of the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, as well, and her views before and what she thought should have been allowed, which are quite concerning and I, I'm sure will come out and should come out. Uh, and yes, absolutely, uh, the there are, there are, it's, not impossible to have allowed a serious show of protest in a way. And, and the most annoying thing is the organisers of Sarah Everard Vigil were trying to do that and were in constant contact and were trying to make it as, as sensible and serious as a way. But, you know, major political issues like violence against women and girls do not go away in a pandemic. Unfortunately, quite the opposite. In many cases, they will have got worse and the help and services that people rely on in some cases just haven't been available. So it's a you know, these kind of issues don't go away. And the, the, the peaceful rights of protest, in my, you know, in my opinion, should never have been taken away at, at all, let alone by the time of March this year, when we know, as you so rightly said, about the, the, the impacts of, of outdoor and super spread events. It's, it was a very questionable policing decision. It may well have been a very questionable decision by the Home Secretary. But it, it showed that it's all very well rushing to take away liberty and say we need to in health emergency but then it leads to consequences like this you can't just do that because then there are issues that come around like black lives matter like the kind of endemic violence against women and girls and the lack of support and the lack of you know criminal justice system being adequate to it these issues come around and and it was just a very very potent reminder uh and you know the right there aren't that many rights that are really as fundamental as the right to, to show peacefully your dissent. Next up, on March 11th, President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan, his $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. It includes $1,400 checks for every American earning less than $75,000, $400 unemployment insurance benefits through to the summer, money for reopening schools and saving restaurants, and more money for state and local governments. Among other things, it is expected to slash child poverty in half. What does this say about the Biden administration, and are there any lessons for Keir Starmer's labour? Um, Miata, I want to sort of put this in a, in a couple of different contexts. First, the strictly the US context. Um, it's been compared by various people, sort of FDR and the New Deal, which is about as big, that's as big as you, as the American government gets. Do you think that that's kind of a, a reasonable language to use? How big a deal is this for the US economy? I think it's huge. Um, and the really important thing to remember is that Four trillion dollars has already been thrown into the economy as part of the pandemic response. And so the one point nine trillion is around the recovery. And that scale of stimulus is absolutely massive. You know, and some of the economic commentators are suggesting that the stimulus on its own is likely to be the kind of the biggest contributor to a GDP pounce in uh, the US economy over and above anything else. So I think it's massive. But for me, the two things, it's not just the quantum of it, but it's what it's trying to do. Um, It is deliberate. 
And mm. it is deliberate in the things that it's targeting. So trying to tackle poverty, trying to support families directly in a way that if you, for example, compare it to some of the things that you know our government did in the budget is very, very different. And in the US context, that's massive. It is ripping up a consensus that's dominated for 40 years since Reagan uh, mm. that essentially says you don't fiddle with the economy. You don't intervene in a massive way. You certainly don't prop up families. Uh, you don't essentially have the kind of social security or social protections that we take for granted over here in Europe. So it is a massive departure from what has been a norm and has you know, variated, varied between different administrations, uh, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, but there's been an orthodoxy and it's tearing that orthodoxy up in quite a remarkable way. So for me, why it's significant is not just the scale of it, which I think will have a huge impact on the US economy, but it's a fact that it's charting a different direction of travel in a way that I think has probably taken quite a few people by surprise. And and is so is it more political then than packages from the UK or the EU? Like you said, it, it's not just trying to sort of keep keep people's heads above water, but it's actually trying to sort of change the shape. Yeah, and I mean, look, I think the comparison with, if you like, you know, if you, to the extent that you could call the budget our attempt at a recovery stimulus, uh, which I, I, I wouldn't do that. But if you use those as sort of two points of comparison, the Biden administration has essentially put about 10% of GDP into its stimulus. By comparison, we put in about 4.5% of GDP, so half the scale of it. But the thing that we spent our money on was very, very different. You know, the protections to family, bolstering their social security system, all the things that will ensure that people who are really, really hard hit by this pandemic are protected and they're given some sort of support in order to be able to recover better. And we just didn't see anything like that on this side of the pond. So for me, again, it's both the quantum, the scale of this thing, but also the things that it tries to do. And you you take something like the minimum wage, $15. I mean, that's massive, doubling the federal minimum wage in in, in one intervention over time, yes. But I mean, at a point where wages are expected to be kind of stagnating or declining, doing that to push up wages is a massive intervention in the market. I mean, the minimum wage was something that they wanted to put in the bill, but apparently it was ruled out by the Senate parliamentarian um, due to, you know, saying, well, you couldn't do that under the reconciliation process, which which makes me wonder, like, this was, it was passed through reconciliation, uh, which, for those who don't know, requires a simple majority in the Senate, you know, the 50 Democrats plus Kamala Harris's tiebreaker, and therefore it's resistant to the filibuster. So you can push through something huge like this, even though um, no Republicans voted for it. Now, Biden's got other plans, including the Build Back Better infrastructure plan, which will be even more expensive. But is this the only time the Democrats will be able to get something like this off the ground? You know, the the Democrats might want to do a lot more like this and beyond, but then they're going to start bumping into sort of serious opposition. Yeah, so I think time is of the essence. I think the combination of the kind of the pandemic sense that people want change, which, you know, it's clear in this country, but it actually we're seeing it country after country, and it's certainly the case in the US. Um, the permission to be bold and radical that in some respects the pandemic has kind of forced on our politicians and our political system, and the ability to do things at pace, and then the politics, you know, the fact that actually they can get things through both houses something that the Obama administration did not have as its disposal, 
all means that they should act and they should act pretty quickly. I mean, but I wouldn't underestimate the politics of this. So, you know, for me, I hear a $15 minimum wage. I'm like, surely that's a no brainer. But, you know, only half the last polling showed that only half of the American people support it. Uh, the other half are uh, dubious or concerned about it because they worry that it will have a knock-on effect on employment. Exactly the same debates uh, that we have in this country. So navigating that politics is difficult. But the fact that they were willing to do it, the fact that it was even there, something as totemic as this, I think is a real indication of the, the, the boldness, the willing to kind of grip the moment. Uh, that we're seeing from this administration. And a lot of people had reservations about Biden. You know, he's a pretty centrist, middle of the road type politician. And a few people thought he would be bold. And, you know, perhaps it's in a middle of the road type person that you can sometimes push through what are pretty bold, ambitious policies because people are less uh, worried about them. That's the, yeah, that's the sweet spot. It kind of riles up fewer people than than I suppose if Bernie Sanders was offering exactly the same thing. Although, of course, Bernie Sanders was yeah, heavily involved with this. He just wasn't the man at the top. Namely, this bill is supported by 70% of American voters, including 41% of Republicans. It will make a real difference to people's lives. Obviously, the Republicans have been the sort of party of no for a long time now. But do you think that they were foolish this time to unanimously reject it and that they will they will pay a price for that? So the last time the Republicans voted against a big stimulus package, of course, was in 2009 in the wake of the financial crisis, and it eventually paid off for them electorally. So I think that they are probably hoping slash assuming history will repeat itself. And I don't think it will. I think politics has changed big time. Not even mentioning, you know, the kind of continuing Trump war with the GOP that that is waging in the background, the sheer scale of the economic devastation and all of the disruption wrought by the pandemic dwarfs that of the the 2008 crisis, because at its peak, I think it was something like nine million jobs that that were lost in the Great Recession, uh, compared with 22 million jobs lost over the course of the last year. A year on, you've got 10 million jobs remaining lost, 20 million children out of school, half a million Americans dead. And, you know, hundreds, well, I think about 100,000 businesses at the last look at it that were closed forever. So I think it probably is a, a political miscalculation to hope that the pendulum will swing back in their favour because it is such a different scale of pandemic. Well, Biden said, we need to remember the government isn't some foreign force in a distant capital. No, it's us, all of us, which, as Miata suggested, is a sort of explicit rejection of this sort of Reaganite small state ideology that's dominated uh, for so long and has even obviously influenced democratic administrations. So do you think this has the potential to permanently shift simultaneously, of course, you've got the, you know, the vaccine program, which the government is rolling out pretty successfully. So could it shift how Americans feel about the role of the government and actually to to be thinking, do you know what, we've we've really been helped and that could change how they uh, vote in future? I hope so. Uh, and, and, you know, across across the world, not, not just there, the prevailing orthodoxy now needs to be for far greater state intervention and to provide those safety nets for people. I think it was really interesting that the US Chamber of Commerce, which is traditionally very much a Republican ally, has declined to support or oppose the, the Republican position. And normally they would be full throttled out opposing, uh, supporting them uh, and opposing the Democrats on this. So I do think if that is a bit of a bellwether for the signs of the times they are changing, then that could well be it. 
Emily, such boldness from a centrist character like Biden inevitably raises the bar for, for Starmer. Do you think that there are, uh, there are lessons to be learned from this? It, could, it, could it encourage Labour to sort of think a bit bigger? Yeah, well, and also, by the way, the first thing to say is that you talk about him as a, a centrist figure, but one of the things that Joe Biden's been able to do so successfully throughout his career is keep people together. And, OK, mm. no Republicans voted for this, but he kept the Democratic Party together brilliantly well not an easy job, had no margin for error, none in the Senate at all, and not much in the House either, and managed to do that by playing a a background role just brilliantly, politically brilliantly. And I think we will look back at how he did this over the last few months for for years in in admiration. Um, Yes, I do. And if now's not the time to be bold and do things differently, then I don't know when it is. I mean, the scale of the crisis and the disaster couldn't be bigger. I don't know what the Labour Party thinks about some of the huge, big post-pandemic building, uh, how we change things yet. I, and I don't know them. Uh, and I'd like to know them <laughs> because I, like many people, think this has exposed, this last year's exposed some things that you just think we need to do so much better. And when I think about Britain, I think about the gaps in our safety net that this thing has exposed. The gaps being much bigger than many of us would have liked to have thought. Well, I probably—I mean, the, the word centrist is confusing because I suppose if you're talking really politically centrist, it's Joe Manchin. I suppose I thought it's, it's almost like centrist in temperament, as in being a good coalition builder, and and, and therefore when when the de- when the Democrats were more to the right in the '90s, Biden was more to, you know was more was in that position, and now that the sort of base of the party has moved to the left. Yeah. Biden moves as well. So it's almost some it, it's sort of it's it's not centrist as in he's wedded to a particular position. He is wedded to being in the center of wherever his party is at that point. Well, I again where the power is. I mean that's where the ability to get stuff done is. So what a great politician to be able to do it. And no one can doubt the his effectiveness of doing it, given what's happened in the last two weeks. And that's that's really what but isn't that really what politics is about, is bringing people with you and understanding where are and trying to move them and yourself changing your views over the last 40 years. I mean, of course, you know, I remember when pe- parts of the left here were attacking him viciously when he won the nomination, saying this is a disaster, etc. I just thought, I mean, he's, he's, he's much more um, a better example of kind of real people and how real people think and change their minds and move as circumstances change. You know, I've changed my mind a lot in the last year. I don't think that's a bad thing. And so have other people because of the scale of the challenge and what you learn. And and so attacking politicians that exemplify that seems to me kind of silly. And and I have to say some of the flanks of every party here and all types of politics fall into Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would completely agree with Emily on that point about, you know, learning and that being, you know, a, a benefit and voters liking that. And what can Britain learn? Britain can learn that austerity um, has lost the argument for a generation and the Lib Dems really need to learn that and show a bit more contrition for having supported it so much during coalition. You don't cut in the lean years. I think we have now finally proven that, that you spend and that spending is, is what's needed and government budgets are wholly different from household budgets. Completely. And I also think there's a bit about the way you approach politics and the way you talk about it with people, because the kind of what I have found really difficult in the last few years, personally, is the kind of the tribalism is an overused word, but I'm going to call it tribalism for now, the way that you pit people against each other, and you become so, so uh, entrenched in in parties. And, you know, I find it funny. I mean, just I can only speak personally that I thought I used to think I was really super tribal. And, you know, I was involved in the Labour Party from a very early age. 
I became a candidate when I was 17 for it. I can't believe I'm thinking it now, but your experiences change you because you see that you really do see the dangers of that approach and what people will do in the name of a, of a party that then suddenly the way it acts or what it's saying is so anathema to you. You've got to, I think we've got to change the way we think about politics, not least because the people that I know that are most politicized, that are you know, most interested in politics, it's not always reflective of how the way that most voters mm. or people in Britain think about it. And if we don't change the way that people really involved in politics start thinking about it, you're just going to become less and less, less, less relevant and have conversations that are less and less relevant to the things that are going on in the country. But it, it's the way it comes across as being the grown-up, but while also being radical and progressive. And I think Starmer is very good at doing the, the, the grown-up bit We've yet to see the, the the charisma that takes you from the the competence that gets you to about thirty eight percent in the polls over that forty percent barrier. Well, yeah, but you're, you're comparing someone in opposition to somebody uh, in power, and it has been interesting that you've got people who are who are calling Biden a boring loser who was going to blow it, you know, a few months ago, to now going, this is wonderful. He's wonderful. Why can't Starmer be more like that? And so I think this. I think this, the story of what Biden's done is also to sort of perhaps be aware of the, that it's possible to kind of misjudge what somebody's up to when they're trying to get into office. Now I don't know. Maybe that's giving Starmer too much credit. But I do do think we have a test case here where what people are saying, particularly on the left, about Biden now is not what they were saying less than a year ago. But I hope that Biden's created the permission and the space for Starmer to go in as an opposition leader to try and fill some of that. Now, the pandemic might have dominated our lives the past year, but what about those places where COVID isn't the biggest threat to life? Mahir Azuz is chairman of the Syrian American Medical Society Foundation, a humanitarian organisation which is preparing northwest Syria's vaccine rollout. I'm uh, Mayor Azuz. I am a uh, practicing gastroenterologist in the United States, and uh, I currently chair the uh, Syrian American Medical Society SAMS Foundation Board. So when it comes to the COVID vaccination program in Syria, the program has not started yet. Currently, plans are in place where we have assembled teams. Criteria for the prioritization was also established. Programs and capacity building initiatives for identifying refrigerator units, and then the teams that will be administering the programs are being trained. The number one priority of healthcare providers, and the second priority are uh, people aged 60 or older, and the third priority are people with uh, comorbidities who are younger than 60. Those constitute about 20% of the population, which is where the program goal, initial goal at least, is to, to vaccinate about 20% of the population. When it comes to difficulties with implementing a vaccination program in a conflict zone, the most important challenge is really the access, especially with this vaccine that requires two doses. This is not a vaccine that we can uh, put on a truck and go and deliver. Patients who are eligible for the vaccination, when you're in a conflict zone with 4.3 million people, that the majority of these people are in camps that may move from camp to the other or from location to the other based on conflict conditions. Tracking these persons over a 12-week period may be one of the major challenges that we will have to be able uh, to overcome. And that's where a strong registration system is something that we will strive to achieve. The second challenge is obviously making sure that the quality of the vaccine and the conditions by which the vaccine is kept 
are maintained, not to count difficulties with convincing people of the validity of the vaccine and the safety of the vaccine. And that's a big component of the public campaign that will need to be conducted. And the last main challenge in a conflict zone is the fact that not just preventing the disease is difficult because of the lack of minimum humanitarian conditions when it comes to availability of water and soap and uh, obviously social distancing, that also will affect the effectiveness of the vaccine campaign. One of the lessons that we should have learned is that the only way to protect oneself is by protecting others first. The only way for a community within a country to be protected is by making sure that the most vulnerable within that community or within that country are protected first. Just a few days or a few weeks of ceasefire is not what is needed now. We need to look globally at conflict. So it is a very well-received and greatly appreciated and a timely initiative, but we need to take it further. Finally, this week, Line of Duty is back. The most popular police drama on TV is about police corruption, incompetence and failure to move with the times. It happens to arrive when the British police are under the spotlight more than any time since Stephen Lawrence. In the US, the George Floyd protest last year led to criticisms of police shows on TV as so-called copaganda, selling viewers a sanitised version of policing. Do we have the same problem here? Naomi, do you watch police shows, including Line of Duty, um, and are any of them guilty of this, do you think? I do. I am a, a pretty big fan. I've been hoovering up the latest series of Unforgotten. Um, you know, no one's going to say that Luther isn't an enjoyable watch, if only to admire Idris Elba. And I did, um, no spoilers, don't worry, but I did watch the first episode of Line of Duty last night. Um, as somebody who grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, where the RUC was very much a tool of oppression, uh, also considered by many communities there. I've always sort of come at these things with a slightly, you know, arched eyebrow and let's not over-glamorize the police. But I do think that British dramas tend to focus in on the rogue cop or the only one that's good is the one that's a bit progressive and on the flank and not really part of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the cliquey, traditional uh, view of a police person. So I, I think we probably do it better than, than some other countries do. And uh, particularly line of duty, of course, because it is all about anti-corruption and there, boy, oh boy, is there, you know, significant corruption still within several forces around the country. Well, it makes that makes the one in the, I think it's an, un, an unnamed town, isn't it? In line of duty, it seemed like the most corrupt force in the world. You know, there are cops in Paraguay watching this thinking bloody hell. <laughs> it's a bit out of order. Um, and I suppose that, you you know, if you think of Prime Suspect or Happy Valley or or quite a few, British shows generally seem more sort of jaundiced than American ones. I don't, it's hard to think of one maybe that is quite as heroizing as uh, CSI, where it's just awesome cops being awesome. Like, do we, do we even make those shows? Emily, you're a bit of a Morse fan, I hear. I'm absolutely obsessed with Inspector Morse. <laughs> I'm not sure if he's... Yeah, uh, I do we. Uh, they're very, very different. I mean, I used to be obsessed with Law and oh, the yeah. SVU when I lived in America. If anyone's watched that, and they are proper her- um, yeah, proper heroine in, in the case of the lead character there. Uh, just a, but the, the TV here that we make is just so different. Anyway, I'm not sure if I can dis- disassociate it. But I love Inspector Morse, and 
I I don't know whether that makes me sound very sad or very cool, but um, I'm also obsessed with Line of Duty and I've forgotten. The thing I can't cope with about Line of Duty is that we now have to wait seven days. I've got so used to watching everything in one go, I'm finding it quite difficult and I've only lasted a day. I mean, do you see do you see these shows through uh, a political lens to some extent or, or you know, or, or just just as entertainment? I don't think it would work. I don't think we'd find Line of Duty so wonderful if we didn't think there was some element of truth. Like, I'm not saying that there's a Chiz and an OCG in every police force that's a caddy, etc. But there is an element of truth because, you know, and we, we should be critically sceptical of the police, you know, who guards the guards. It's, it's, it's important stuff that uh, we should care about. And uh, I think that's why it rings home a bit. And it's also just so brilliantly made. Um, Mielta, what do you think of this concept of, of copaganda? Is it, do you think it's sort of inherent in all uh, cop shows or, or just some? Well, it's the first time I've heard about it. Um, and, and not <laughs> You're learning. I suspect there is part of that. I mean, I think it's quite interesting comparing, if you like, perhaps some of the more kind of critical cop shows in the US versus the ones here that tend to be uh, a bit more fluffy and the cops are always the good guys. Because I think we, we do have a slightly different relationship and discourse with the police in this country, which actually I think the Black Lives Matter protests were the first time that we started to kind of unpick and have a bit of a debate there. I think there is a, there is a, there's, there is greater scrutiny. There is a, a section of the population in the US that's far more critical of the police than we have here. Well, Nieta, I would just say here being England, Scotland and Wales, you, we can't say that of Northern Ireland. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. England, Scotland, Wales, absolutely. Um, and I think that that then filters into, if you like, our culture and our entertainment and the way that the police force is perceived in the screens that we watch. Um, now, how much of it is deliberate versus just osmosis? I don't know. I'm mean, surprised you say that because do you think that British shows are more, do give a more positive version of the police than the, the American ones? Because I suppose apart from The Wire I, and The Shield, I suppose... I do associate the American ones with the more positive view, even though their police have more, you know, more serious problems. And that ours is a more kind of like glum, rainy take on the police. It won't be selection bias because I'm comparing the bill uh, to the wire. <laughs> so I probably don't have a very good sample size. <laughs> I, I did notice, by the way, and I thought this, I thought somebody was joking. I thought the, the whole kill the bill, the kill the police bill slogan was actually code for kill the police, as in the bill, as if young people uh, on the streets today um, were calling them the bill. <laughs> Which I thought, I'm sure, I'm sure that's not, I'm sure that is not the current <laughs> slang for the police. I, it's just, it's so much more British. I, I just think it's just, it's so symptomatic of the different cultural way that we just talk and think about it in America, the glossy, all guns, you know, blazing. It's just, it's just so different. I have to say, I prefer the kind of realism of British TV cop dramas. Naomi, I, Unforgotten, which you mentioned there, um, I've only just started watching this season, but it turns out it's brilliant and I should watch the others. And I've read that it's the only show where every murder victim, and you only have one per series, I think, has been male. Most still rely on the murder of attractive young women. Some, like The Fall, which of course is set in Northern Ireland, um, seems also to be, you know, not just the attractive young women, but also the sexy serial killer. I've got, I've got a Jamie Dornan anecdote if anyone wants it. Did he stalk you? 
No, no, he went to my school. Uh, he didn't stalk me, but um, I was his breakfast monitor. And so uh, he wasn't allowed to leave the table until he'd finished his cornflakes, unless I said he could leave. So yeah. thinking about Dorian Gray, you know, it was probably me that gave him a taste for the, you know, I'm not going to say it. Is that a separate problem? I mean, we talked about the representation of the police, but do mm-hmm. do do sort of crime dramas have a problem with this obsession and i don't that's not just british because you also found that in some a lot of the kind of scandinois shows and and obviously um Laura and rest for you that's all what it's all about that we do have an obsession with the murder of women and often the sexualized murder of women yes um but you know paul how current is that given everything that's that's you know been in the news lately and and the horrendous uh, spotlight that we're now having to shine on the lack of safety that women have to put up with across the country so uh i mean it is refreshing in unforgotten unforgotten is also really about historical murders so they're always uh you know being reinvestigated murders that have happened you know decades ago and things like that which is another nice twist on it but i guess sex sells and that's why the formula keeps getting trotted out and finally, Emily, there's a there's a tendency whenever we talk about, I suppose, pl- art in a political way, um, for there to be a kind of reactionary backlash, which is don't let the woke brigade take away our fun stuff. Do you think there's a way of making detective shows that are more sensitive to the politics of policing, to the pol- you know, politics of society more generally, while still giving the viewers those sort of old fashioned whodunit pleasures? So really, nothing's being taken away; it's just being thought about a bit harder i don't think you could i mean look at all the amount of quality shows that just fit your criteria that we can watch all day every day now Mm. exists i think that people's desire to be reactionary will never go away unfortunately but in this case i don't think we have anything particularly to worry about and we should care about representation of women of ethnic minorities on tv and we do and uh, and it, and we do increasingly, and the people that make them increasingly do. And there is reasons to be very optimistic um, because, as I say, what just look at look at what we can watch right now. We've already talked about some of them, so things are changing for the better. We've come to the end of this week's bunker, and as usual, we're going to ask the panel for their escape routes and politics, the TV, films, books, or whatever else that's giving them sweet respite. Uh, Miata, let's start with you. Um, what has been distracting you from politics this week? So I don't watch cop dramas, but I definitely watch um, uh, hospital dramas. So uh, Grey's Anatomy series 16 uh, has just wow. come out on Netflix and I've been watching that. Have you seen Bodies, the Jed Mercurio, thing Jed Mercurio did before Line of Duty? Oh, no. It's really, really good. It's, it's on one of the streaming services. Uh, I mean, it's, pr- it's quite harrowing. Don't watch it if you're pregnant, because um, he's because he's an ob obgin obgin obgin, um, and so it's all about things going wrong or whatever. But it's really it's really really good. It's a sort of very sort of jaundiced view of uh, of the NHS. Very good. God bless the NHS. I don't necessarily endorse this jaundiced view, but it's very entertaining. Um, Naomi. 
Well, apart from like doom scrolling uh, my Instagram and getting incredibly envious of everyone that's had their vaccine while I wait patiently uh, to be called for mine, I have been redecorating and repainting and inhaling those lovely, lovely fumes of white spirit because I am a messy painter and I then have to go and tidy it all up uh, and also sanding down wooden work surfaces. And note to listeners, never, ever, ever buy wooden worktops for your kitchen. They look beautiful, but they are a total pain to uh, maintain so yeah i've been sort of mindful while having to do diy emily uh, apart from watching inspector Moore and fraser for like the hundred thousandth time um i should have been practicing my violin i haven't i've just moved flat i'm trying to find a sofa that will um fulfill these two criteria that won't bankrupt me or take like 15 weeks to arrive so if anyone has any suggestions i'm very behind the times i didn't realize that it was going to cost as much to get a new sofa um and i have been uh, avoiding practicing hindi that i've been trying to learn and generally procrastinating of which i can say i've been pretty good at this week. <laughs> what about you dorian what have you been up to mine is well considering that i've done a lot of i started in journalism as a music journalist um but since doing a podcast, and this obviously being the period of Brexit and Trump and so on, I just often found that I would listen to so many podcasts that I forgot to listen to music, uh, which is generally, although podcasts such as The Bunker are, of course, excellent entertainment, um, the music is just a chance to um, to feel something different and to go elsewhere. And, and every now and then I just have a, you know, I'm just like, oh, yes, I should listen to more records. And two artists that I really love um, have recently released the first singles from forthcoming new albums, Wolf Alice and St. Vincent, and both of them are doing different things. They are my kind of, you know, optimum kind of artist where each record is different they're really exciting and it just gives me something to look forward to and hopefully at some point uh see them live so there you go music in general but specifically those two always good escapism and that's the end of this week's bunker thanks to naomi smith thanks very much miata farmbella thanks for having me and our special guest emily ben Thank you very much for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. So follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Don't forget the live Zoom with Yasmin, Arthur, are here, and special guest Brian Class happening this Thursday, free to Patreon backers. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up and get access, plus early podcasts, merchandise, and more. Patreon backers get a shout-out at the end of the show, too, and here are some now. It's a huge thank you from me to Vicky, Di Watts and Angie Oakley. Hello and best wishes from me to Edward Buxton, Fred Wheeland, Steve Leyland and Robert Campbell. And finally, thanks for me to Paul Wilson, Marianne Ford, Wojtek Lubuviki and Megan Bennett. Take care and see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Miata Farnbella and Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>